But the story goes that they met as young buffalo hunters, I believe in one particular season, and then they drifted their own separate ways and eventually reunited uh, when Wyatt Earp became assistant marshal of Dodge City in the spring of 1876. Bat Masterson was recovering from a gunshot wound at his family's farm not too far away, and Wyatt called on his old friend and asked him to come and be a part of this new regime of lawmen who were taking over Dodge City. I'm Chris Wimmer, author of The Summer of 1876, Outlaws, Lawmen, and Legends in the Season that Defined the American West. The book itself, a bit of an experiment for me. I thought it was a really interesting way to combine several storylines. I through my podcast, Legends of the Old West, I discovered that lots of big things in the Old West era happened in a very short space of time. And I thought it would make a really interesting book to try to weave all those stories together in one narrative. So the book focuses on several major storylines that all happened in about a 90-day period in the summer of 1876. Those major things include the Battle of the Little Bighorn, the first partnership between Wyatt Earp and Bat Masterson in Dodge City, the arrival of Wild Bill and the growing boomtown of Deadwood, and then the murder of Wild Bill in Deadwood, and then finally the great disastrous Northfield raid by Jesse James and his gang of outlaws. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. We're joined by Chris Wimmer, who is a writer, a host, podcaster, and producer. Uh, he worked in the film and journalism industries for 18 years before creating Black Barrel Media. And this is his uh, first book, The Summer of 1876, Outlaws, Lawmen, and Legends in the Season uh, that Defined the American uh, West. Uh, tell us ab about what uh, drew you to make this kind of a book? Why did you want to combine different things about what's happening in the Old West at a particular moment? It was because I, I read a lot of books for research for my podcast, Legends of the Old West. So I had already done lots of research about each of these individual topics, and it hit me in about the summer of 2019 that in all the books I'd read about each individual topic, they very rarely referenced anything else that was going on in America during that time. And it just so happens that in that summer of 1876, there were lots of really big things happening around the country. And so I just thought rather than focusing exclusively on the Battle of the Little Bighorn or the career of Jesse James or anything else like most books do, I would try to combine them all into one and take each piece and strip it down a little bit and tell it in the most fun, fast way that I could and weave them all together so that you can really feel the context of what it would have been like to maybe be alive during that time period. Did people who were alive in that time period get it? What, you know, that, boy, this is the Wild West. We'll be looking back on this for centuries. You know, that's a really interesting question, and one I've asked myself a lot as I have been thinking very much in that direction. How much did the people who were alive at that time recognize the enormity of the things that were happening? Did they put them all together into one big canvas? Did they view them that way? And I don't have a great answer for that other than that I can absolutely say that the aftermath of the Battle of the Little Bighorn was essentially earth-shattering for Americans. They, to have their fabled son, their great Indian fighter, General George Armstrong Custer, I guess he was technically a lieutenant colonel at that time, killed by a war party of Lakota and Cheyenne, it was enormous news. It was earth-shattering for everybody there. So they definitely understood the enormity of that. 
But whether or not they put everything together the way we can now view it with hindsight, it's hard to tell. But I have to imagine if you were a newspaper reader in a place like Missouri, for instance, in 1876, and you're reading about the Battle of the Little Bighorn and all the different robberies of Jesse James, you're kind of at ground zero for lots of things that are happening. You might have felt the gravity of a lot of the stuff that was happening. Well, let's uh, focus on uh, Custer's last stand, as it came to be called. How did he get into this predicament? It's a, there's a, I'll try to make it a short story. It can be a very long story. It was a very interesting sequence of events that led him to that moment. But the general mandate was that the United States government, through the U.S. Army, wanted to herd all Native American societies onto reservations. And so it was essentially the mission of three armies in the West to track down the camps of Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse, the two most prominent leaders in the Northern Plains, and force them onto reservations. So that was the general goal. And uh, General Sheridan, who was the commander of the Department of the West, organized three columns of soldiers Mm -hmm. to try to pursue this mission. And it ended up that Custer's column of the three was the one that finally attacked the massive camps of Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse. And by the time he did that, his his column, his force was so dwindled that he was wildly outnumbered by the warriors uh, from the village. There was no hope for Custer. Very little. I mean, it, it is it's it's possible at certain times that he could have led a retreat. You know, that's that's the big his his decision making and his logic in what he did and why he did it has always been questioned, and people are able to read into it a little bit based on his past experiences, but. That really helps inform what we think of Custer's decision-making, that he could have retreated. He could have pulled at least some of his men off the battlefield and fled the area of the, of the Little Bighorn River. But in his mind, he had seen it work previously, where if he could capture the women and children, even if there was a part of a really large village with lots of warriors, if he could capture the women and children, that would force the warriors to back away and Custer could claim victory. He had done that a few years earlier in Oklahoma, so that was his mindset. Even though he's wildly outnumbered, if he can capture the women and children from this village, he can still claim a victory. So he just kept maneuvering and maneuvering to try to pull that off, and ultimately it didn't work. This probably is too lighthearted or or something. I remember this old uh, popular song, Please, Mr. Custer, I Don't Want to Go. Do you remember that? I think I've read about it, I but I don't I don't know if I've actually heard a recording. But now that you say it, I'm 100% going to look it up. And Custer earned his stripes in a way, did he not, in the Civil War? Yeah, he became a you know what was sometimes referred to as a boy general. So I believe he was he was promoted to the rank of brevet major general during the Civil War. He led some. He was very flamboyant and very outgoing. So he had a personality that that um, led him toward promotion and elevation. But he also excelled in certain engagements, so he was very young and rose to the rank of major general during the war. But then after the war, when the Army downsized dramatically, he, his rank was reduced back to lieutenant colonel, which is, which would happen to a lot of people. Um, mm. so they received battlefield promotions during the war when there were hundreds of thousands of soldiers, and when there's not as many soldiers, you can't have as many officers. Now, you point out that there there was no direct evidence of well, maybe not direct evidence, but there's no story 
of what happened to Custer because they all died. I mean, all of the people that could have been writing memoirs in years later about how they survived uh, Custer's last stand, they they weren't there. So it was, what, who was it? Who came up with the story? Yeah, it's, it's pieced together through several sources. In the years following the Battle of the Little Bighorn, eventually reporters and book writers and all kinds of different people were able to track down some of the Lakota and Cheyenne survivors who had been in the battle. And so they used Native American oral tradition to try to piece together what happened with Custer's uh, unit. Then, of course, there were three Crow scouts who were, who were leading Custer's column and participated in the very beginning of the battle, but then they left the battle. So they were able to give firsthand accounts of at least some of the early stages. And then there's, of course, you know, the, what we might call today forensic evidence a day after the battle, two days after the battle, when columns of soldiers arrive to relieve Custer, they find all the bodies and they can kind of piece together the train of events and see the trail of where the units were based on where the dead were lying. And then there was a whole group of soldiers under the commands of Major Marcus Reno and Captain Frederick Benteen, who were trapped on a hill about four miles from where Custer and his men died. And so they were able to provide at least a little bit of long-distance insight. So with all these different sources, they, you know, historians have been able to piece together what they think is probably the, the best available story that we're ever going to know. And also, kind of was going to say, of course, this really didn't help the Native Americans much. I mean, the American army came back. Yeah, this was, you know, I don't remember exactly how we referred to it in the book, but I think the, the way to maybe look at it is it really was the last gasp of the largest group of Native American societies on the Northern Plains, that fighting this battle for them, they viewed it as a good, serious engagement. They fought and won an engagement against the U.S. Army, but it wasn't as, I guess I used the phrase earlier, earth-shattering to them as it was to American society. To them, they were defending their village, they did that successfully, and they moved on. It wasn't as enormous to them as it was to American society, but it ended up being that way, because once you know, the word of the of what they called Custer's Massacre hit all the newspapers. There was outcry and outrage across the country, and the U.S. Army redoubled its efforts to track down every free Native American people still around on the Northern Plains, which caused eventually Crazy Horse to turn himself in, and his village surrendered. Sitting Bull led his village up to Canada and completely fled the United States, but then had to surrender when they were starving. So essentially, was the last gap. It was the, the last gasp. It was the death knell of those societies. They simply couldn't sustain against the U.S. Army any longer. The other history stories you tell, you know, directly related uh, to the massacre of Custer and his uh, troops, are closely related. I mean, you, you're talking about Wyatt Earp and Bat Masters' enemies. What's the connection? There's no direct connection between these storylines. You know, I, to my knowledge. You know, Bat Masterson and Wyatt Earp, I, I don't know. I don't think they knew anyone who was in the 7th Cavalry or was in those those cavalry units that fought in the various engagements that were part of that summer of 1876 campaign. They certainly might have. They certainly might have crossed paths with them. But there isn't a ton of direct overlap in that way. It's more the timing that these events happen simultaneously or one right after another that creates the overlap effect. Um, I don't know. There might be a little bit of knowledge between, let's say, the storyline of Wild Bill Hickok and Wyatt Earp and Bat Masterson because they're 
geographies overlapped, though they were at different times. So I guess it's possible that certainly, you know, anyone who's a lawman in Kansas by 1876 would have known about Wild Bill Hickok and his lawman days in Kansas in the early 1870s. But I don't know if there was any direct link between them. Well, let's talk about some of those other uh, incidents. Uh, Wyatt Earp, Bat Masterson, Wild Bill Hickok. Do you want to start with Wild Bill? Yes, Wild Bill. It's a it's a somewhat tragic story by that point. Wild Bill was one of the most famous people in America by 1876, but he was absolutely at the end of his career. His eyesight was failing. His body was starting to break down a little bit. Um, he lived the lives of 10 men, probably. Uh, and so by that point, he is newly married and wants to provide a stake for his he and his wife, even though his wife is very well off. She has been operating a circus for many, many years, which were hugely popular. Traveling circuses were hugely popular in that area, and she operated one of the most popular. So she was fairly well off on her own, but Wild Bill still had this idea that he wanted to provide for the family. And so his last attempt to try to do that was to go to Deadwood, the, the new rising boom town in America where gold had been discovered, uh, and to try to make a fortune, it's ostensibly mining or panning for gold. Though by that point in Bill's life, he had no interest in, in standing in a freezing cold creek or being down in the mine with a pickaxe or doing the hard labor that would require it. He was much more interested in simply trying to make a fortune at the poker tables, taking money from the miners. Uh, and so it ended up, he ended up crossing paths with the wrong person in early August, 1876. And someone decided to, uh, Someone shot him in the back. Well, shot him in the back of the head, I guess. I don't want to get too graphic on your podcast, but um, he crossed paths with the wrong person, and that was the end. Who was that person? It's a, a, a what's generally called a kind of no-account drifter named Jack McCall. He was there's, there's not a ton of history about Jack McCall. He drifted around the West. I believe he was from Kentucky. He was an odd-looking person and kind of dirty and dingy, what we would call kind of shifty and shady today. <laughs> um, and, and Wild Bill and Jack had gotten in a, had been in a poker game the night before the murder, and Wild Bill finally won the game. And, and you know, the legend goes that he gave Jack a dollar to go eat breakfast because he had cleaned Jack out. Jack lost all his money in this game. So Wild Bill was you know, possibly being benevolent and handing Jack a dollar to go eat breakfast and the theory has always been that that somehow insulted Jack McCall. So the next day, when Wild Bill is back in the number 10 saloon, the same saloon where he had beaten Jack McCall the previous night, Wild Bill's playing poker at a table, and Jack McCall walks into the bar in full view of everyone. You know, some of the legends say that Jack McCall walked in and Wild Bill had no idea he was there. But the most credible accounts say that Jack McCall walked in. He lingered at the bar next to the table where Wild Bill Hickok was playing poker. And then Jack simply pulled out a gun and shot Bill in the back of the head. That part was without warning. Jack was not the kind of guy that anyone looked at as threatening. So the fact that he would do something this audacious definitely shocked everyone and took them off guard. And then Jack ran out the back of the saloon and tried to escape, but he wasn't very good at it. And he was captured by the townsfolk and then, put into a kind of an, you know, an informal trial where he was acquitted, but then he was later captured by a U.S. Marshal and given a real trial and found guilty of the murder of Wild Bill Hickok. What about uh, Wyatt Earp and Bat Masterson? They really knew each other, right? Yeah, they had the stories from their era say that they met as young buffalo hunters on the plains of Kansas 
in the early to mid, yeah, probably early 1870s. Is, you know, these stories are hard to track down too. They're all hearsay and, you know, and, and people telling it third and fourth hand down the road. But the story goes that they met as young buffalo hunters, I believe in one particular season, and then they drifted their own separate ways and eventually reunited uh, when Wyatt Earp became assistant marshal of Dodge City in the spring of 1876. Bat Masterson was recovering from a gunshot wound at his family's farm not too far away, and Wyatt called on his old, called on his old friend and asked him to come and be a part of this new regime of lawmen who were taking over Dodge City because Dodge City had become the newest hub for cattle. So there were thousands and thousands of Texas cattle coming up the trail with all their rowdy cowboys, and Dodge City needed a whole new crop of serious lawmen to contain the chaos that was coming their way. I should have asked you this a few minutes ago when we were talking about Wild Bill Hickok. It so happens we're talking with you in Deadwood, or is it the Deadwood where Hickok was when he died? Yes, I am. As we're recording this, I am in Deadwood, South Dakota right now, um, about, gosh, I don't know, maybe 100 yards from the original saloon number 10 where Wild Bill Hickok was killed. Um, I love coming up here to Deadwood. We've My sister and I, who run our small, our small podcast production company, we've come up here several times and really gotten to know a lot of the people who are involved in Deadwood history, and we've done several events up here, so... It was a natural place to come to do a little book launch event for my book and do a book signing, and we're doing a presentation up here. So we took the opportunity to come back. What is Deadwood today? I mean, is it a tourist attraction? Is that its primary claim to fame? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting town. But yes, the tons of tourists are, are drawn here. But the other thing that, that Deadwood relies on, which lots of towns that are typically known for their Old West history. Eventually, they have to find some other way to make money to, to sustain the town. And so Deadwood has embraced gambling. So there are lots of casinos. So lots of hotels also have casinos in them in Deadwood. So the revenue from the gambling industry directly helps the historical societies here in Deadwood preserve the Deadwood history. So it's a, you know, it's a kind of compromise that everyone has reached to keep the gaming industry alive so that they can keep the history alive, and it seems to work really well. They've done a great job in preserving the vast amount of history that is here in a very small place in Deadwood. Yeah, um, and pardon, you probably said this a few minutes ago. What state is this in, uh, Deadwood? Deadwood is in the would be the westernmost part of South Dakota. It's right on you know right on the border between Wyoming, Montana, and and South Dakota. So it's technically in South Dakota. Again, as with um, Wild Bill Hickok and uh, George Armstrong Custer, and now we've brought up Wyatt Earp and Bat Masterson, uh, these stories are all being covered in the newspapers of the day primarily, right? Or other print media, something like magazines. Yeah, it's both. I think the most immediate coverage is the newspapers. They, you know, almost all newspapers, certainly the ones that had the resources, would run at least two editions of their newspaper per day, one in the morning, one in the evening. Sometimes there was an afternoon edition. Certainly when it was warranted, they would put out extra editions and special editions. And then there were also a whole slew of magazines that that would write articles about things that we would now consider the Old West. So they could be like a fishing and gaming magazine that also wrote stories about Texas cowboys and things like that. So there were a whole bunch of magazines that did more what we might call in modern journalism feature stories and weren't necessarily keeping up 
with the day-to-day events, they were doing big, long exposés on certain people or events. One other name to, to bring up, maybe then a different direction. What was the uh, story of Jesse James? Yeah, the Jesse James by the eight, by 1876. I, to me, this is a really interesting story. By 1876, Jesse James and his gang, more than likely, you know, there's not there will never be 100 percent confirmation of when their first robbery happened. But generally, it's assumed Jesse James and the guys who would form his gang committed their first robbery in 1866. So by 1876, Jesse James and what it was then the James Younger gang have been the premier outlaw gang in America for 10 years. Uh, and so by 1876, they are, they're wanted all over the Midwest. They're being, they're being chased around Missouri, even though they have lots of partisans and lots of people who are loyal to their cause and like them. There are also lots of people who don't like the robbing and the killing and certainly all the law enforcement. Their job is to try and stop Jesse at, at every turn. So Jesse and his gang fled Missouri and went up to Minnesota and robbed a bank in a small town called Northfield that they assumed would be just a pushover, and it turned into a total disaster. And they got into a, a gunfight with the citizens right there in the middle of town, right outside the bank, and they ended up fleeing the town, galloping away on horseback after most of them had been injured and a couple of them had been killed. And then they spent two weeks on the run trying to escape posses as they ran through southern Minnesota to try to escape back down to Missouri. So that, what would have been early September of 1876, was the end of America's first great outlaw gang, if that's what you want to call them. That, That robbery put an end to the James Younger gang, though it did not put an end to Jesse James and his brother Frank. They were mm. able to continue. So it was kind of like that was the end of the old the old days. And then Jesse James reconstituted himself in the future and tried one more time to reclaim, you know, the, the outlaw ways of the past. And that didn't go very well either. No. And, and eventually he was murdered, right? Yep. By one of his his new crop of gang members. When they when they lost that original gang in 1876, that original gang, those guys had known each other basically since childhood. Many of them had fought in the Civil War together. They'd been through literal battles together. They had robbed trains and banks and about anything that could be robbed together. They were very, very close. When that gang was gone, and when Jesse James wanted to start robbing things again in the early 1880s, he had to find a new gang. And the new gang he came up with was not nearly as good as that old gang. The new gang was much more of a group of local misfits than guys who were battle-hardened and grew up together. And so one of those gang members ended up killing Jesse James to claim the massive reward that was on his head at that time. Chris Wimmer, author of The Summer of 1876, Outlaws, Lawmen, and Legends in the Season that Defined the American West. Uh, People um, were reading about these stories in 1876. Would they have said or said to each other, boy, this is the Wild West. I mean, were they self-aware, aware that this was something that um, would, would uh, a handle that would be attached to their time of life? I think that's an interesting question, too, because I, that's one I think about a lot, and I think I, I've been asked that a few times. And I, I would, I mean, I have to imagine that labels like the Old West or the Wild West are things that came along much, much later. Those are terms that we use in much more modern day to look back on that era of time. But they certainly would have viewed the West as much more wild. Whether they used the the term Wild West or not, the West was 
almost literally wild. It was untamed there for a long time. There were no rules. There were no fences. You could go wherever you wanted to do, go wherever you wanted to go, do whatever you wanted to do. There was very little oversight. So it was viewed in that way, even if they didn't use the words. And then when they started reading about all these events, you know, I, I think certainly some of the more prescient people who were reading all these things in the newspapers would have had enough self-awareness to realize, man, we are really living in a crazy time of change here with all the different things that were happening in that one specific year of 1876. But I, you know, I think it would be a select few who could view it with an even wider lens and on a larger scale um, over that era. Did this mayhem and um, gunfights and so forth and the idea that the West is wild, did that attract people? I mean, to, to go there? Is, was this one of the reasons the, the West was, was developed or did it scare them away? I, all of the above. It really is what it was. There were two big reasons that people moved west. Usually, you know, as I said, I think I said, was saying to someone just the other day that if you're a young family or a young person who wants to establish himself or herself, the first primary way to do that was to have land. You wanted to be a landowner. The, where, the place to get land is in the west. So people flocked to the west to try to get land so they could establish themselves and start building a life for themselves. There were also people who wanted to flock to the West to capitalize on the various mining strikes, the silver strikes and the copper strikes and the gold strikes. So fast money drew people to the West. And lots of times when you're talking about fast money, you're not talking about the most scrupulous people on Earth who are chasing that fast money. And then simply outlaws, people who wanted the freedom to do whatever they want or people who were on the run from crimes they had committed in the East, the easy place to to go is to the West, where nobody knows you. You can create a whole new identity for yourself, and no one will know the difference. So it was populated with a whole crazy cast of characters out West, a lot of whom, many of whom, were not the not bastions of, of morals and scruples, I guess. In 1876, you keep tabs on other events in American history, um, cultural history. You and I talked about this when we were setting up the program. Baseball w- was founded, really, in 1876, or the first National League was created, right? Yeah. It's, you know, this is, I, uh, on one of my, I host and produce two podcasts, one of which is called Infamous America. And on Infamous America, I did the story of the Black Sox scandal, the 1919 World Series baseball scandal involving the Chicago White Sox, the famous eight men out story. And in researching that story, I had always been interested in history and I always had some interest in early baseball history, even though I'm not the, you know, the world's largest baseball fan in general. I was always drawn to those earlier periods of baseball. And so when I started researching this book and I started piecing together the fact that I had learned a lot of the history of early baseball and doing that Black Sox series, the first season of the National League happened at the same time that all these other big, crazy events were happening. That's really interesting to me. And the National League is, is the first, it was not the first professional baseball league in American history, but it was the first one to stand the test of time. All the others started and folded after a season or two. And the National League went through its problems, but it started in 1876 and it has not stopped. And so I think that to me is what really I really wanted to, to highlight the fact that this thing we still view today, the National League that people still watch by the millions today, started in this, well, it started in February of 1876, but they started their play in the spring just like they do in modern times. Also in 1876, the telephone, Alexander Graham Bell's 
invention debuted? I mean, people started using telephones? He debuted the first one at the, uh, the Philadelphia Centennial Ex- Exhibition. Um, I, you know, from my understanding of it, he had you know, a copper wire, I believe it was, that connected to, you know, I can't remember what the receptacles were. Like, you know, you have the image of two tin cans on a string. It was very mm-hmm. similar to that. So he created this device that was very, very similar to that. And you could, he set it up in one of the exhibition halls there in Philadelphia. And I believe, I can't remember the distance exactly. I believe it's the, the number 100 sticks in my mind. So it's maybe 100 feet or maybe 100 yards. So he stretched a copper wire over that distance. And a person could stand at one end and another person could stand at the other. And they could talk to each other in real time and they could see the demonstration of how this would work and that dazzled people like almost no other now it didn't mean that telephones immediately sprang to life but Mm -hmm. very shortly after that demonstration in 1876 deadwood was one of the first places to get the telephone chris wimmer is author of the summer of 1876 outlaws lawmen and legends in the season that defined the american west You've been listening to The Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore.